Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode on religions, regimes and refugees and their multicultural mess and secular scam. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm very, very honored by your presence. Um, I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you are. Uh, peace to all of you. We, um, I wish you a lot of healing because we're about healing. Um, this podcast is about giving you the knowledge to heal. Uh, because knowledge is the best, absolutely the best um, medicine for healing. Once you have the knowledge, you have confidence. And once you have confidence, you can have a conversation, offload the baggage, refuel yourself and heal from the inside. It is absolutely the best and, and all of us need to heal in order to go forward. Because remember, we're currents and waves. So today I'm going to finish my last... Uh, episode on this series uh, that I started a, a week ago on Islam, but uh, it's about the history of Saudi Arabia. So let's start without further ado. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the talk of the world and the heart of Islam, for good and bad reasons. I just typed Saudi Arabia today and uh, and up came a, a six-year-old Shia boy, brutally killed on his way to visit the Prophet Muhammad's grave. Not a good omen. Rest in peace, my dear friend Zakaria al-Zaber. Saudi Arabia is, however, a land of pristine beauty. Their desert home is a spectacle to all. Our ancestors at one time would have all passed through this land. Its citizens, uh, all of nomadic descent, so they live in large parts in urban cities. They were, until not so long ago, a very simple people, with exception of their tribal establishment. Our Abrahamic religions and our planet's media have not been very kind to them uh, and to their nomadic heritage and painted them as backward people. They are not without any blame, but to point fingers at others would be sh to show us a mirror image of who we are. Our ancestors would have all mirrored the Saudis for at least 150 years at some point in our history. Uh, sorry, at, our ancestors would have all mirrored the Saudis of the last 150 years at at least some point in our history because we're cycling. We go up and we come down. Um, so I'm not, I'm not without any fault either. I shared the same image of our Gulf neighbors growing up in India that until very recently, um, I believed the Saudis were backward people. However, over my years of research, especially after the 9-11 attacks, I see completely a different picture. So here it is. The land that makes up the modern-day Saudi Arabia was originally the seabed of the Tetis Sea. When the African continent shifted and banged against the European continent, the seabed rose up to give us the Arabian Peninsula. The western part of which is now the country we call the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or KSA for short. It was tropical at first, and, and the climate has changed with the movement of the Earth's astronomical orbit. The last cycle started with this region being green, where some scientists believe after 6,000 to 7,000 years ago, the region was tropical forest. The region changed from an arid desert pretty quickly in plus or minus 200 years. Ever since then, it has been deserted. This land of pristine beauty has been the crossroads of civilization. Uh, 
where caravans have been have crisscrossed for thousands of years. When this land at the bottom of the sea, marine life, uh, was the bottom of the sea, marine life would have done the same, crisscrossing with the movement of ocean currents. Instead of marine life, we now have humans doing the same over land. We find traces of some of the earliest civilizations of history in the world in this land, home base and birthplace of Islam, the Arab tribal dynasties that made up the first three caliphates of Islam came from this land. However, as the tables turned on them, it was followed up by the people of this region themselves being occupied and colonized by the Ottoman Empire until 1923. This region is made up of four distinct provinces, all put together by tribal chief Ibn Saud, their king in 1932. Today its people are staunchly Islamic. The first Saudi state came about 1744 when its founder, Mohammed bin Saud, joined forces with the founder of a religious movement um, led by Mohammed bin Abd al-Wahhab. It would be a foundation that laid the groundwork for a future state. It was destroyed in 1818 by the Ottoman Viceroy of Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha, a smaller version um, of what is called Saudi Arabia today, with another, sorry, a smaller version emerged in 1824, located mostly in Najad. The Saudi, the Saud tribe fought for the interior of what is modern-day Saudi Arabia with another Arabian ruling family, but eventually driven into exile in what is modern-day Kuwait. In 1902, a Saudi prince from the Saud family, Ibn Saud, recaptured what would become the area of modern-day province of Riyadh. Ibn Saud then joined forces with the Ikhwan, a tribal fighting army inspired by the, what the modern world calls, calls Wahhabism. Um, according to them, the true teaching of the Prophet Muhammad, um, the Saud Ikhwan coalition then went on to capture Al Hassa, A H S A, from the Ottomans in 1913. In 1916, allied with the British Empire, the Sharif of Mecca um, led a pan. Uh, Arab revolt against the Ottomans to create the Arab state, which failed. After which, the First World War, the Arab revolt failed. Ibn Saud was not involved in the revolt, but empowered with the Ikhwan. He declared himself to be the Sultan of Nejed in 1921. He conquered Hejaj, ruled by the Hashemites, in 1924-25 and declared himself a king later. After the conquest of the Hejaz, that's H-E-Z-J-A-Z, that's H-E-J-A-Z, the Ikhwan wanted to expand their power to the Arab frontiers of Transjordan and beyond. However, King Abdulaziz was not interested in Saudi imperialism. He was more interested in modernizing his kingdom and, um, and fiefs. He wanted a better life for his people, to be equal in the world. His goal was to eventually transition his people and peninsula to world-class group and destination, a place where knowledge would lead to peace. The Ikhwan was not the same of the same mentality, hence they did not have, they did not like having non-Muslims on their territory. 
They turned against Ibn Saud, and after two short years struggle, after a short two years struggle, they were defeated in the Battle of Sabila in 1929. In 1932, the two kingdoms of Hejaz and Nejd were joined together, and the new country of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was born. He then married one daughter of each tribal chief to cement the alliance of the tribes of Arabia. He is said to have at least 100 children, of which 45 sons. The new kingdom was a few, had a few resources and was reliant on little agriculture, wherever possible, and money from pilgrims visiting Mecca. In 1938, oil was found in the eastern province, along the coast of the Persian Gulf. In 1941, under the U.S. control, Aramco, that stands for Arabian American Oil Company, the petroleum sector took over as the main and only industry of the country and has dictated Saudi Arabia and its geopolitics ever since. Saudi Arabia went from backwater in the desert to a global powerhouse. However, there were problems. Foreign workers coming into the country to work oil wells did not sit well with religious clerics. They were always a tussle between the political and ideological leadership. The king, uh, the king and his family had to find ways out of the box to speak, to convince the Wahhabi clerics to issue fatwas or rulings, to legitimize the modernization and technology innovations introduced in the country. In November 9th of 1953, King Abdulaziz, the founder, died with a promise from his sons to stick together and support one another. His second son, Saud, took over the throne until 1964, but that caused tensions. He was extravagant and not a good administrator. He was deposed of serious debate and counsel within the family, and his brother Prince Faisal took over. King Faisal was said to be the real foundation behind modernization of Saudi Arabia and bringing the kingdom into the 21st century. A gem of a person and loved by all. With a head on his shoulders, the pride of his ancestors on his back, he drove the agenda that would be the envy of world leaders even today. A balancing act with the dual ability to hold his own on any stage at the same time and negotiate in his favor. He was not a fundamentalist and really the last of the true rulers of the kingdom. After his fundamentalism took over, a fundamentalism that would define the kingdom we've come to know today. He was assassinated by his nephew, Prince Faisal bin Musaid, who was out to take revenge for his brother's death. His brother was killed by a police officer during protest against the introduction of TV into the kingdom. King Faisal has refused, had refused to reprimand the police officer. Faisal was succeeded by his brother Khalid. From here onwards, the Saudis made economic and modern progress, though it all came at a price. They forgot their nomadic roots and soul. They forgot their connection to the land, the feudal power at the top like all nations. Indeed, to micromanage their citizens below. This was done with Islam in the name, in the case of Saudi Arabia, no different from any other country. In case of the kingdom, as they are known, the ideological group was an orthodox set of people using Islam as a proxy label to micromanage the minds of its citizens. The Saudi ruling family was no other, has no other chance than to give in. They became more and more conservative by the day. 
They ended up having competition as to who would be religiously conservative than the other. Add to the Arabian geopolitics and you have a desert soup that even the camels wouldn't go near. What is important to note is that Saudi Arabia people, sorry, the Saudi people, uh, starting with the founder Abdulaziz, was not as centric as portrayed. They themselves were not fanatics. Neither have they ever wanted to be. They had no intention of colonizing the world. All they wanted to do was come of age and join a modern planet. Their alliance with Wahhabism sect of Islam has got them, however, into this position. One of the reasons this has gone from bad to worse is the alliance of the Wahhabi clerics themselves with a powerful Arab geopolitical group called the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood themselves were allied through the back door with the Ayatollahs of Iran. In order to keep their clerics happy, the Saudis allowed the Muslim Brotherhood into their country, accorded them safe passage and, and a haven to regroup after problems with President Nasser in Egypt. Once on, on the ground in KSA, the local Wahhabi clerics enjoyed their presence, which gained support and embarked on the Brotherhood agenda to revive their empire and spread their colonial fate around the world to take over the planet. Um, if, the, if the Saudis would not have led the Brotherhood in, onto their soil, history might have been different today. However, the Brotherhood had other plans, which were about pure power. They wanted to introduce their own brand of pan-Islamicism, where Islam was the solution for everything. They saw Ward used their 1400-year tribal proxy label and seize the opportunity. The rest, as they say, is history. The modern Saudi state has betrayed their founding king, Abdulaziz and King Faisal. Those two were probably turning in their graves and saying, what have you done to the Saudi Arabia we left you? What have you done? However, according to Islam, the first real state in what is modern Saudi Arabia was the Islamic state of Medina, known then as Yatrib. Uh, created by the Prophet Muhammad in 622 AD, the real, true, democratic and first humanitarian state of all mankind. A perfect pluralism and multicultural state. Yes, you might need some scotch for the following paragraphs. Sorry about that. We have already spoken about the Medina, about Medina uh, before, the Medina Charter. Um, Islam has led its congregations to believe that this charter was really the first constitution in the entire world. No other group had anything like it. However, this charter includes war, blood money, avenge of blood money from others um, besides some typical colonial vocabulary of Allah. Believers, protection and crony peace as a proxy for perfect paradise on this planet and the next world. Need I continue? Muslims are con convinced to strive and recreate this perfect Islamic state of blood money and war all over the world. In the modern world, we call this terrorism. However, that's why you will never find peace in Islam, as their version, of, their version of perfect humanitarianism is the first Islamic state of the oasis of Yathrib, filled with blood money and Allah. 
The chart of Medina, however, says that the Nabi was visited by the angel Gabriel and this charter and its rights were sanctioned by Allah. Go get your scotch, fellas. Islam says it's about normal behavior of the 7th century Arabia. But it was it normal behavior for the man behind the title Muhammad? Heck no. I was watching a debate on, the, on memory TV for suitable government in Iraq or Islamic countries. One very intellectual Iraqi politician by the name of Ahmad Jamal al-Din was debating in favor of a secular state or the separation of state and religion in a televised debate. His comments was, were very interesting and worth listening to. He spoke on the first Islamic state supposedly formed by the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. He said, The rule of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in an al-Medina produced, among other things, a phenomenon unknown to Arabs in pre-Islamic times. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was completely unknown to the Arabs in pre-Islamic times. They were free as a falcon, and even more. The Prophet Muhammad lived in Mecca 13 years as a heralder and warner. He had no police force, no army, no money. In Al-Madinah, he lived for 10 years and a, as a heralder, as an, a warner. But he also had military power and political authority. The hypocrites emerged in Al-Madinah, and there is an entire surah in the Quran titled The Hypocrites, that's Surah 63, known as Al-Munafikun. There are many verses concerning hypocrisy that were revealed in Medina. There was not a single hypocrite in Mecca. People were either Muslims or politists. That is, why, what are you getting at, came the reply from the moderator. Jamal continued, the first negative connotation of an ideological state, even under the rule of Prophet Muhammad himself, is that it produces people with a split personality. Hypocrisy is a reaction to not, not to a religion, but an ideological state. Even if that ideological state is ruled by the Prophet Muhammad himself, not to mention when it was ruled by others. The goal of religion is to form human beings. When rulers wanted to strengthen their grip on society, they began to intimidate them with religion, and hereafter in order to tame these Muslims. My claim is that there should be civil rule. All prophets, not only the Prophet Muhammad, were sent in order to form human beings, not to build buildings. Of course, there were others who added the, that the hypocrites of Al-Madinah were Jews, not the Muslims. Let me explain the above paragraphs, okay, in my words. So you heard the um, Prophet, you heard... Uh, the uh, the debate in in uh, in Baghdad in um, the debate that I just talked about uh, in Iraqi t on Iraqi TV by Jamal Ayad Jamal Al Din, very interesting, very intelligent young man. Um, so I will explain it to him. A Bedouin is a nomad; they have no fixed home. They travel with their families in caravans and camel caravans, shipping flock from one end of the desert to the other, besides other goods and services provided. As they travel often, they have no possessions and a very few material goods, only to survive in the desert. 
Items to make their tea over a small desert fire. A few clothing and their tents. Nothing else. They are free to roam the desert sands with the help of stars. They are not attached to any labels or groups. While they have tribes for survival, they need to stick together in the desert. They depend on fellow desert communities for food and trade. They are not attached to these groups or labels. As they have no labels or fixed groups, they have no use for most material possessions. Nor do they have a need or to grab land or label their encampment. They need water and stop and to stop at an oasis around the desert for fairs, for marriages, for birds. But they love their free nomadic life in the greatest of open-air museums our planet has to offer. As they are free, they have no need to pretend or to hide or lie. They are free as falcons. They do not need to go to war as they do not need to hold on to lands, nor do they have to submit to feudal lords. The desert belongs to all and no one at the same time. They were also and were prior to the advent of religions and matriarchal tribes. This meant the men would go the man would go to the woman's tribe after marriage and take on the name of her tribe. He would and the children would take on the name of her tribe. He would have to offer her dowry. A marriage would be annulled or spouses would separate at all times without any fear or shame. The women got the cam- to keep the camels and the family tent. The women looked after the children, passed on the education to them, and the sons would grow up to take care of running any caravan trade uh, that the family partook in. He was responsible for acquiring the food supplies from the outside, while the women would feed the children and partake in any commerce or traditional functions with her tribe and, and on occasions with other communities. They did not need to be hypocrites. So when Ayad Jamal al-Din said that there was no hypocrisy in Mecca prior to Muhammad forming the first Islamic state of Medina, the fact of the matter was that the man behind the title Muhammad was a nomad, and so were the rest of his clan members. Neither was he a clan or tribal chief, chief that ran a tribe, nor made treaties with others. He was a nomadic caravan merchant who crisscrossed the desert to sell his merchandise. A very good one at that, with great knowledge of astronomy and the desert. Administrating a tribe was not his line of work, nor security, politics, and ideology of a political of a political state. So why would he give all that up for a crony state where people fought and were beheaded, where he did not have freedom, but was embroiled in non-stop fighting with his fellow tribes. Even if God wants him to form some type of state, he cannot change from non-violence to violence in 10 years. It takes centuries and, and more to go from one end to the spectrum to the other. One does not change, one only balances the electromagnetic field. Besides some among the matriarchal tribes, the woman is the center of society. She's the soul. Treated with more value than gold. She's in charge of transmitting the heritage, the music, the poetry, the knowledge. The transmission of knowledge was primordial. And a job started by the women, but also shared in conjunction with the men of the family. The astronomy of the cosmos, which was their nomadic map in the sky, was transmitted to their fathers. There was no female slavery, and the woman is not bought and sold as she's a dual part as she's a dual part, or should I say most important, member of the tribe. 
She is not sold as a child bride, nor uses a sex slave. She asked the man to marry her, which is exactly what happened to Muhammad. It was his first wife, Khadija, who asked him to marry her, and he stayed with her until his, her death. In matriarchal societies, it is the women who asked for the divorce in most cases, while they also received dowry from the man, a custom that still exists in modern Islam but now patriarchal Arab world. A custom that they took from their matriarchal society, but changed the label and forgot the rest of the context. Muhammad was a matriarch, a very successful one at that. He would have had he would have strived all his life to maintain his freedom and ancient customs, just like the Tuareg of the Sahara are doing, who are doing the same today. This first Islamic state was therefore not set up by the man behind the title Muhammad. It was the work of the people of the book who run, who ruled the oasis and ran the Bet Deen in alliance with, the, uh, with Umar, the future caliph. The rest of the Muhajirun, the immigrants, and anyone else who joined their alliance, that is possibly the Ansar, the Meccans, that were unemployed and not willing to put in the effort to work. So as the great Green New Deal of the Democrats in America, which says, unwilling to work. Even after being offered 25,000 new high-paying jobs and a possible $27 billion in future revenue over 10 years, their leadership led by what is known as so-called progressive socialists convinced their electorate that they were entitled to just sit at home and have the government pay for them. A socialism which is a modern reincarnation of ancient feudal slave kingdoms, where slaves work for little or no salary, all the while believing that is God, that God will come one day and deliver them to paradise, while which is which they are entitled for taking the same. Even though the Green New Deal will destroy America from the inside, destroy the economy, a Trojan horse to establish a new feudal order. They rather have that than grumble to eternity. They rather have their neighborhoods infested with crime than take the responsibility and work. The label has changed, but the mentality has not. Like the modern social progressives of America and New York, the ancient Bedouins, those who thought they were entitled to power, used the ignorant but enthusiastic youth on the ground. They invoked and they invoked some divine social justice from the heavens only to run an agenda. The ancient unemployed Bedouin youth were convinced to believe that they were entitled to loot and keep power in their hands, power given by Almighty God against the enemy, the Kufr. So they went in search of that loot. They were convinced, very much like the Islamic youth of today and those pelting stones in India and causing havoc, that the goal of Islam is not about justice to each other, but to establish servitude to Allah and his missions, that is jihad to enslave um, the kufr. A mission which would not bring justice in life, but in the next. <clears throat> then they wait for God to shower his mercy and bounty on his followers, that is entitlement, socialism, okay, or jizya. Hence, they invaded other tribes, caravan merchants. They used the Nabi's name to camouflage their transgressions posthumously. In life, the man behind the title Muhammad would not have been happy 
that his ancient, free-spirited, nomadic way of life, bereft of groups, was dying was a dying concept, which would have pained him deeply. Taking sides, what no, taking sides was not what he, uh, not who he was. A free falcon empowered by the liberty of the metaphysical and not the physical was more the Muhammad that he would have wanted his people to know about. The Arab saccharines uh, who started this uh, political movement were individually and later collectively called Muslims in Islamic literature and went on to overtake the Levant, which they knew very well. The alliance between the Israelites and the future Caliph Umar and his men of unemployed youth gave the coalition much needed knowledge of the area. Administration experience of major trading cities, oases, trade routes, literature for jurisprudence, and finally an, and eventually take over the Levant. In reality, all they really needed was to get back to Jerusalem, as they were too stupid to believe that Yahweh would come to save them once they rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem, all of which would pave the way for the return of the Messiah. So the man behind the title, Muhammad, in the meanwhile was killed and was buried in Medina. The rest, they say, is history. Why did this man not say anything? Well, like Mahatma Gandhi, who had to submit to the will of the establishment, he was an is an, um, the man behind the, the title Muhammad, or the man they call Muhammad, that is, Islam calls Muhammad, was an Israelite, was on an Israelite slash Ansar oasis. That means he was on someone else's territory. He was indebted to the establishment for giving him a safe place to stay with his family and a few friends. So he could not tell the Ansar or Meccans nor the Israelites that he did not agree with their side. Um, they were both wrong in using labels, forming tribes, forming patriarchal power groups, which would lead to violence. He knew what was coming but could not do anything to stop the onslaught. He knew that change, any change in discourse would have spelled trouble for the women who would have been endangered. The primary duty of the matriarchal tribes was to protect the soul of the women who, they, who, are, who are their center. What the man behind Muhammad uh, did not realize was that his silence too was detrimental to his survival. He would have had individual conversations with the establishment, but was too weak at the point to go the distance. At least he tried, and he was a, he was a current generation, um, and he and we as a current generation are still grateful for his effort, however small it was. Now, why was the oasis of Yathrib or Medina so important? Well, as the Encyclopedia of Islam says, the Hebrews were very much like today. The, the entrepreneurial kind they could not take anything they could take anything and convert it into a profit they, which was exactly what they did in Yatrib after they migrated to the region following the Judean Roman wars they introduced agriculture date palms cereals this improved the economic advantage and enabled, enabled the Israelite tribe to dominate and control the area the Arab non-Israelite Politics or Hagarins were people who did not possess land on, or vineyards. All they had were sheep and camel herds. They were unable to cultivate and generate an income or, or financial capital apart from their caravans. The concept 
which was very true and is still true as of today. A simple reason was the fact that they were nomadic people, so possession was not part of their mentality. They were caravan merchants who went from one place to the other. However, that that took knowledge, dialogue, forming bonds, which was also very important in any scenario you live in, in urban areas and the oasis. The basics which they forgot, but the man behind the title Muhammad had. He knew both sides were wrong, and their title and their little oasis was not going to work without the basics of astronomy. He had the knowledge as he used it on a daily basis on his caravan routes. He was willing to give it to, to them to regenerate the local economy, to help the youth, to help the unemployed, just like his family transferred their knowledge to him as a child. As an elder statesman, he was willing to go the distance, even if it meant taking time out, which would have been comfortable for his retirement. However, the establishment of the Meccans, the Ishmaelites, and the Sacrans only wanted power. Then the Abbasides used his name to drive an agenda for power and money. A problem with the Tuareg people of our times are facing too, as history repeats itself with the last of the planet's nomadic descendants. A group who represents literally the last of the Mohicans. If we lose the Tuareg of North Africa, we lose it all just like we lost the man behind the title Muhammad. If you still want to understand what the difference is in being a free as a falcon, no labels, free to generate your life and form those bonds, free to be free, to have knowledge and to be to dwell in an impressive metaphysical uh, cosmos, look no further than the Quran itself. You do not have to read or understand its Ar Arabic, a language which I myself do not speak. I'll go to the ancient Qur'an and take a look at the script of the earliest Qur'an. Um, you, have, you have a copy of the, of the original Qur'ans on my, on my Facebook page, Religions, Regimes and Refugees. If you go on to Facebook, I have posted a copy of the original Qur'ans on that. And you can take a look at that and you can and, and, um, and follow this chapter. Handwriting tells a story. There's a space between there's space between the words. There's horizontal structure, the rasm. The words are not all about the place. The words in the alphabets do not overlap each other or seem that they are at war with each other. There's respect between the vocabulary used. It's passion, it's beauty, it's inner peace, and respect in the handwriting itself. Leave alone the meaning of the words. If the nomads wrote like this, it meant their writings were an extension of who they are. This was nomadic life in the 4th, 5th, 6th and 7th century. You can almost feel the people writing on animal skin even today. You want to reach out to them and through your computer say hello from the 21st century. You, are, you want to hold their hands and go for a walk. You want to sit around the campfire and have that conversation. The power of their want is the only feeling that surrounds you. This was the extension of their nomadic life and energy. They were free to roam the desert sands and interpret life as they choose, without any inhibitions. Now look, now Google modern day Quran, uh, Quran and your draw jobs. All you see is words, alphabets, accents overlapping each other. Transact translation violence. Um, if the Quran were the same, you would not see the difference. 
This is because Islam converted the Middle East and its colonies into a war zone. However, the moment Islam develops in the 8th, 9th century, Arabic starts slowly developing vowels. Each vowel, when added to a word, locked the meaning of the word in a linguistic come ideological box, forcing people to interpret that word and a sentence in a particular way. Uh, that suited the establishment that was using the particular version of the text or controlling the rhetoric. Yes, there are said to be different versions of the Quran. That locking of the meaning of the Arabic word with a vowel came to represent a life within an Islamic society that was a prison for its human capital, an ideological prison that defined people by the interpretation of others and not by their carefree spirit. But, but the nomad behind the title and his Bedouins were free as falcons, from labels, possessions, accents, and ignorance. He was a true Amaze. He was born free. Amaze in English is the, is the name used for the Berber people of North Africa. They are also known as the indigenous people of the North African continent. However, they never used labels themselves. The word Berber, Berber or Berber in English is said to be the first, first used by the Romans. Uh, they were meant they, which meant foreigners or people who were not Roman. Amazigh means free or noble people in their native dialects. They were nomadic people, no different from the concept of Arya in Sanskrit. They all came from the same Vedic belt. They were the last of the Vedic descendants, in my opinion. Those who were still true nomads. The freedom signified that they were nomadic. Um, they had no roots in one place, no labels, and they were free to roam the continent. Have that conversation and think out of the box. They were extremely knowledgeable in astronomy, the cosmos which they would have needed in the desert to survive. Um... Their women were teachers of knowledge, using the desert sand as writing boards. It was this knowledge that gave them the freedom to acquire and share information with other groups and empires that passed their way. They formed an integral part of the Phoenician empires, the Cartesians, the Romans, the Egyptians. They were free thinkers, and their free thinking abilities led them to be the drivers and foundation of the civilization mentioned above with whom they formed political alliances, but never lost their nomadic spirit. It was slowly chipped away after they became settlers and gave up their nomadic spirit. They were builders, merchants, caravan statesmen, without all of whom the empires believed mentioned above would have crumbled. They were not destroyers in a long shot. Similarly, the Amazigh was the backbone of the Islamic empire. It was the Amazigh who, who now, under the label the Islamic label took over the Iberian Peninsula under the Islamic flag as a member of the Islamic coalition. Their people were literate in Berber languages and astronomy. They were able to transfer all their knowledge to the Arab feudal minority who formed the Islamic establishment. They were people who translated all European works of knowledge to Arabic for the first Islamic empire which Islam takes credit for being a scientific religion. The Berber were in Europe long before Islam was part of the European civilization. They were the engine, the transmission behind the so-called golden age of Islam. If the Amazigh were not part of the Islamic group, Islam wouldn't be riding their donkeys in the Arabian desert today. 
the golden age of Islam belongs to the nomadic Amize and not Islam who takes credit for it. I will briefly talk about a specific denomination of Islam at this junction and I've purposely kept for the last. It's called Sufi Islam. It's better known as Tasafu. Uh, T-A-S-A-W-W-U-F. This is where the Sufi Islam comes from. It's called Islamic mysticism. However, its roots lie in the nomadic lifestyle, lifestyle of the desert Bedouins. There's nomads who are free people, people who love to sing, dance, and were free of thought. The only problem being that by putting a label on the nomad, the denomination of Islam also loses out. Once a label is attached to a human, he loses his freedom and becomes a slave. Thus, even Sufi Islam, while it considered itself peaceful and soulful, loses out on having any legitimacy. Uh, for the simple reason of this denomination being another wing of this group. To close this chapter, I would like to invoke a simple nomad who walked the hot arid sands of Arabia almost 1500 years ago. When I started writing this last part of the chapter, I said to myself, I would have loved to know the man behind the title Muhammad. Gosh, what I would have given to have that conversation with him. Just five, ten minutes would be amazing. My mind immediately went to an event in my life almost 30 years ago, or 25 years ago. I was in university and working in a five-star hotel for, to earn a little cash. I worked in an executive lounge exclusive for guests who stayed in executive suites. It was to earn money to pay for my tennis coaching for six months. Tennis coaching, sorry. Sometimes we used to get Arabs who stayed at our hotel. They came from Arab Gulf region and were more precisely Saudi Arabia. They had no class and were literally would literally tip with hundred dollar bills. They looked at you like a piece of meat. Hence the male stewards would deserve would serve them and not the with not the girls. I watched from a distance and wondered how one would be so ill-mannered. Well, as time went by, to towards the end of my life, um, to the end of the, my time working at the hotel, one evening I found myself in the lounge all alone. No guests, no other staff, no security. When that happened, we normally dimmed the lights and I would go into the pantry to do some work, while always checking in the front area to see if anyone came up. The sun was setting, so it was very calm, a beautiful sunset for a backdrop. One of my trips to, out to check if there were guests from the pantry, I scanned the lounge and found no one, but was about to turn and go back when I found a lone Arab sitting in one corner with an entire regalia, head, beads in one hand, and nodding his, in respect of my presence with another. Uh, I quickly apologized and said I would switch back the lights on fully and he gestured to me please, no please do not worry leave it as it is i asked him if he would like any tea or coffee or something to drink he declined and then i asked him would he like me to order anything else snacks perhaps he is respected but he respectfully declined and i was about to walk away i did not want to be alone um with with an arab in that lounge but things, but this man, but this man was different. You should tell, you could tell, even with the dim light of the setting sun, that he was more respectful than others. Simple but great stature. He did not look up to me as 
from up to down as he was inspecting a piece of meat. He looked directly at my face to have a conversation. He smiled and started making talking to me about my family, who I was, if I was studying. He mentioned that I, I mentioned that I was enrolled in university and what I wanted to do in life. I told him I played tennis and he was so impressed. He said he, he had a daughter, just like me, who was also studying there too. I think he, he said she too went to college or university and I'm not sure of the wording he used. All I could think was, wow, this elderly gentleman was so nice and decent. He was so amazing, amazingly respectful. I said to myself, unlike the others who had done nothing, had nothing worth even mentioning about, this man was the opposite. He spoke broken English, but made an attempt to have a decent conversation with me. He only talked about my family and his family, my family and his daughter. He was so proud of her, and he said she was smart. He said education was important. I do not remember most of that conversation, but it was so empowering that I was so grateful to be having the short but ever so precious conversation with him. And I said to myself, well, there are some really decent Arabs after all. Just before I left, I thanked him, and he gently nodded his head in respect and said thank you for my conversation. He wished me well, and off I went. The most interesting part was he never tipped me at all, so I was so grateful. His intellectual conversation was the most important tip of them all. Well, as you can guess, after all these years, he is the only person I remember. All those other Arabs from the Gulf who passed by became a fiction of my memory. However, that man, who I spent a maximum of 10 minutes of my journey in life with, Having that very important conversation is the one whose smile I remember the most. Um, I have no idea who he was, but whenever I hear about the violence in the Arab world, I close my computer or that book that I'm reading, and, I, and he is the first person that comes to my mind. His smile in class fills me with positive energy even today, a quarter of a century or more later. Grateful is the only word that comes to my mind. When I think of his smile and my luck that my path of life crossed his. A junction in life that still means so much to me, even today. So I sat writing this chapter thinking to myself, Oh, I wish I had that opportunity to have that conversation with the man behind the title Muhammad, Even if it was but only for a quick moment. I had to take a step back and say, But my dear Ali, you already have. That conversation you had with that elderly gentleman was a conversation with a man behind the title Muhammad. I'm not saying it was him. I am saying, metaphorically, he resembled the man who was behind, behind that title Muhammad. If he was here, that is what a conversation would be like. All of a sudden, those lights in that lounge that I had dimmed 25 years ago suddenly lit up. It was as if he was saying back to me then, Do not put those lights on, young lady. In any case, you have no knowledge of who I really am. But now, all these years later, after doing that research, I've had that knowledge which brings me the light and recognition of a man without switching on any man-made light. Thanks 
Thank you was all I could sum up. It was truly a beautiful evening. Thank you for the memories. All the above is contrary to what his fellow Bedouins would have said about him for 1,400 years. He was a simple man who read a lot, had the dialogue with his fellow caravan merchants, listened, um, kept a few possessions, shared the starlight in the night sky around the desert campfires, sang the desert songs with his fellow merchants. He never lifted up his hand, never swore, never cursed, balanced the electromagnetic field around him, Knowledge and education would have been his top priorities. Submissive, submissive, feudalistic and ideological slave plantations would have been the furthest from his mind. His fellow nomads took him in to their homes when the time was rough, as their friend would have been there for them when they needed him the most, a symbol of nomadic courtesy. Although he continued his journey into history, it is this history that has not been kind to him. 1,400 years of Arab-Islamic lies and relics of their colonial slavery have done no justice to the dialogue. They abused his legacy to run their sex-slave, bloodthirsty Islamic colonial franchises. But what we have is never-ending spiral of violence in, the name, in his name, something he would never have signed up for. The Islamic movement that robbed his name, his memory, his stories, his legacy, but they will never get his soul. However, this his soul will always be free. So I say to you all, read and have that dialogue with yourself. Empower yourself with knowledge. Think out of the box. Drop the labels and never submit to ideological and plantation feudalism. Only then will, be a will we be able to have that dialogue with the world. To end this chapter, I wrote a poem. A poem to the beautiful nomads of the deserts of Arabia um, and all our ancestors who passed by and to the man behind the title Muhammad. Um, oh beautiful nomad, oh beautiful nomad do you know how sweet your smile is? Do you know how sweet your speech cascades like pearls? Oh beautiful nomad do you know how your spirit brings life to the desert sands? Your vast home of a trillion stars is second to none. The privilege of your amphitheater is a gift that takes us into another dimension. You invite us to your homes with open arms. You heal our souls with your desert tunes. You caress our spirit with your nomadic warmth. You offer us a tea that warms our hearts around your campfires. You do not go out in search of possessions, but search your to but choose to share your stories that transcends time. Oh, beautiful nomad, we have lost our way, but your ancient ways talk to us of a time where our ancestors were beautiful humans. A humanity where they, free, where they were free from labels and possessions, where they were free to roam and discuss under the starlit sky. Oh, beautiful nomad, while we dare to dream of that glittering night sky, we crumble with speech that is now foreign to us. We are subjugated by the ideologies that enslave us. Our nomadic spirit is hidden under the indifference that has now come to define us. The nomad in us, the nomad in us, longs to sing the songs of our ancestors that shared the sands of time. Your presence today, however, speaks to us that all is not lost. Oh, beautiful nomad, we will not give up on our soul for all the ignorant labels of the world.
For we know that when the sun sets, it will rise the following day. O oh, beautiful nomad, thank you for reminding us of who we, are, we were. We will not give up and rise to a better tomorrow. O oh, beautiful nomad, thank you for your memories. And until we meet again. So this, my dear friends, um, was a small chapter on Saudi Arabia, the small history that it shares with the world, and to the people, the nomadic people who roamed its lands pre-Islam, pre-Islamic Arabia, and who were our ancestors, because our, there were no frontiers, our nomadic ancestors moved from one end to the other end, and they were all beautiful people. The sands of time are their their vault, um, uh, this, and they live in that vault, and they live within us. And it's our duty to go back in time and understand them, research and free ourselves from this um, of labels and ideologies. It is important. It is important that we understand them. It's important that we heal. It's important we gain the knowledge. And it's important that we reconcile with the land that gave us uh, birth, the soil, um, and, and give thanks to that land. And the only way of going forward is healing. Knowledge, um, volunteer work. Volunteering is a great, great, great way of healing. So if you have a chance to volunteer, please go ahead and volunteer with anyone and everyone. It is the most beautiful thing you'll ever do and is the best way to heal. Um, in the meanwhile, I ask you to share this chapter, share, uh, have the dialogue uh, with five people, ask them to share it with five other people. This chapter is uh, the end of a series on the history of Islam uh, and their caliphates, their history in the different points I've talked about. We will go to other chapters tomorrow. Uh, maybe I will post another one later on, but for now, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, peace and stay safe.